0: Welcome to the One Haas Podcast. I'm Chris Kim. Today, we have Lance Barnard, Berkeley Haas MBA and CEO of Ward Road Pharmacy in Denver, Colorado. Lance is an experienced finance professional, entrepreneur, and leads Ward Road Pharmacy, an institutional pharmacy that provides the highest level of service, specializing in long-term care, compounding, and home care products. Lance, welcome, and great to have you on the show. Great to be
1: here, Chris. Thanks so much.
0: Lance, it's uh, great to have you on the show today. We'd love to just start with kind of your background in terms of some of the specifics, your Berkeley Haas MBA. Uh, You did your undergrad at SMU, Southern Methodist University, studying business. And before you were the CEO of Ward Road Pharmacy, you worked at places like Goldman Sachs and Samsung Electronics. You've also lived in a ton of different places, the East Coast, West Coast. You're sharing Texas and Utah and now Colorado. Where did you grow up and where did your story begin?
1: Yeah. So I grew up in New Jersey, and I was there my entire childhood up until I turned 18. And most of my friends were going to tri-state area schools or schools in the East Coast, lots of great schools out there. But I wanted to venture outside that experience something different. And so I was looking for business, finance, undergrad programs. And SMU, Southern Methodist University, had a pretty good one. And applied to that, ended up getting a scholarship to go there. And that's what brought me out to Texas.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, you know, Lance, when you were going through that college search program, a lot of folks are still pretty young, but it's such a like important inflection point and a lot of stuff are go through people's minds. Like, why did you want to study business and finance? And how did you end up thinking about even going to SMU considering it's pretty far from New Jersey?
1: Yep. And I'll be totally honest, I had never visited Texas prior and had really not even heard of SMU until it was the college application process. But basically, I'd always thought I'd want to do something business, finance, that always interested me, even as a kid. I was that kid who was starting up random businesses. I had a snow shoveling business and a lawn mowing business. And so I started out at a young age, probably did my first round of snow shoveling when I was... Gosh, 10, 11, 12 years old, just going out there for neighbors, bringing out flyers. But I love the idea of a business. i always liked playing Monopoly and all the tycoon games. And I definitely wanted to go into the business or finance world. And I was looking for a good undergrad program, didn't want a massive school, I wanted to kind of get to know my professors and have a closer group of friends and not feel like I was one in a million ruled out the, the really large schools. And from there, just looked at the top undergrad business and finance programs out there and applied and again, was you know, fortunate enough to get a, a scholarship out at SMU. And that made it an easy choice.
0: Can you explain a bit about um, what your experience life uh, was like when you landed in Dallas? Um, you know, Dallas is a maybe a very different place from New Jersey, but it seems like you did pretty well and transitioned into that college life.
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a culture shock for sure. I just all around everything from the climate to the politics, the way people dressed, it was all pretty different from what I was used to. So I had barely ever been in weather above 100 degrees and for the first few weeks i was at smu it was over 100 degrees like every single day for like 30 60 days (laughs) and that it did doesn't the the crazy thing is in the summer it doesn't get even at night it doesn't go much below that so it's still hot at night and so that that was honestly the hardest part about moving out there was just getting used to the heat and as someone who wasn't always the best about drinking water like i'd be getting headaches all the time and whatever but Ended up getting used to that. The Texas way of doing things is definitely different. A little bit more country. Not People in Texas are very uh, fiercely defend Texas. There's a lot of state pride, and they're very careful to call themselves Texans and not Southerners, which is a mistake I learned pretty early on. But yeah, the, that whole everything's bigger in Texas definitely applies to a lot of different things, a lot of big personalities out there. The New Jersey, where I grew up, there were a lot of things that were like everything was old. You'd have houses that were from the 1800s and everything is so like rooted in deep history since been there since the founding of the US. In Texas, everything was new. It was like something old was considered like 1970s, 1980s. Oh, wow. So that was exciting to see a lot of like new age stuff. And Texas at the time was going through a tremendous amount of growth. A lot of businesses were moving out there, which has only continued to accelerate since then a uh, friendly place regulatory wise and we've recently seen some even some bay area companies moving out there oh yeah uh, a lot of big te- big companies moving out there and austin at the time was like nothing city and now it's This forefront for tech. But yeah, Texas was definitely a good experience. The only thing that I really found missing there was I'm a big outdoors guy. I love hiking and skiing, which probably makes sense given where I ended up landed. And Texas did not have a lot of that. It's pretty flat and not the most uh, scenic places, I would say, with Dallas. But overall, I enjoyed my time there. I think I got a really good education, learned a lot more just about the energy industry, which I never would have if I'd gone elsewhere. Got to experience a different perspective, live in a different part of a country. I think that it did a good job exposing me to a lot of new things.
0: Yeah, Lance, you said you're really passionate about going to business and or maybe finance. And you ended up after you graduated going into finance. Can you explain a bit about what that journey was like and um, you know, included maybe even moving and what that experience was like being a young professional coming out of college?
1: Yeah. So I was I didn't go through any major career pivots or intentions when I was at SMU. I came in wanting to do business finance and left doing business finance. I Around sophomore, junior year, I had internships. I had an internship in private equity and was on that traditional finance route at the time. I was straddling between, did I want to go do a career in finance, maybe go into banking and go into private equity? Or did I want to do something more entrepreneurial? In the back of my mind, I kind of probably knew the answer to that, but I thought at the very least starting my career in finance would be the best way to gain that really core set of skills to be successful at business later in life. So learning how to read financial statements and um, learning to use Excel and all the things that you get to learn as an analyst working for a bank did ended up interviewing for equity research position at Goldman Sachs. The name was obviously a big factor in working for a large kind of reputable company. I knew that would serve me well regardless of where I went and I'd get that core skill set. And so it was kind of a no-brainer for me uh, to apply to that. Fortunately, I got the job and that ended up being a fantastic springboard for the rest of my career. And as an added bonus, that's where I met my wife.
0: Yeah. For some of the folks who aren't as familiar with kind of banking and some of the roles, could you explain a bit what an equity research analyst will typically do and how that role fits within the broader kind of context of the bank?
1: Yeah. So most people, when they think about investment banks, they're thinking about mergers and acquisitions and capital raises and debt financing. Equity research is a bit different. So equity research is studying companies in the public market and writing up articles on those, tracking their earnings, providing commentary and generally where you think the stock is headed directionally. So the clients for equity research are typically institutional investors. So pensions, hedge funds, money managers, they'll read your reports and uh, your analysis. And um, you also get to talk a lot with company executives in your coverage. So I covered the retail sector. So I covered a lot of uh, mall-based apparel companies. I covered Nike, Under Armour, Lululemon, and some of the department stores. And every quarter, we'd log in super early in the morning, analyze the earnings, and provide our kind of insight on what was happening, both at the company-wide level and the macro level.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Lance, uh, for a lot of folks, going to Goldman is like a dream job. And that was uh, uh, your first job. And, and you definitely had a, a really awesome career after that. Once you kind of got settled and maybe were thinking about what was next, you know, what, what was going through your mind at that point? And um, what was that experience like both before starting the MBA and then deciding to actually go to the MBA program?
1: Yeah, so my journey to the MBA from Goldman was I was about a year and a half into my job and got that entrepreneurial itch that I wanted to try something on my own. And I felt that I'd gained a good amount of knowledge over the past year and a half And wanted to see what it would look like to do something on my own. So I ended up actually buying my first company. And that's what led me to leave Goldman. It was a small kind of Amazon FBA business. I was the only person running it, but um, selling health and beauty products. Had a decent reputation and cash flow, at least for that time. And I was eager to see where I could grow things. And so I left my career or left my job at Goldman to go do that full time for about a year and a half. And so during that time, learned a lot about search engine optimization and running a business. It was a really good intro to figuring out how to run a business. And the company, I I actually still have it today. It still runs, but after a certain point, it plateaued and I couldn't figure out how to bring it to the next level. And I was like, all right, so I have more or less automated a lot of the processes, have a lot of time on my hands. I need something else to do. Hmm. And a friend of mine introduced me to a hiring manager at Samsung who was looking to help grow out the trade in division. So, trading in your mobile phone for a new phone. That was a novel concept at the time. It wasn't happening in a lot of places, but we knew that there was a lot of residual value in phones and that you could trade it in for credit. My boss hired me to help start that program up and see where we took it. So, in the years that I was there, we grew it from basically zero to 100 million a year business, just trading in phones, refurbishing them. We started up a certified pre owned division within the team and uh, manage that process kind of end-to-end. And so that was a unique job. It was a combination of finance, operations, logistics... Make some trips out to warehouses, doing the financial analysis, figuring out what how much we should offer in trading credit, a bit of project management thrown in there, uh, starting up kind of new programs here and there. We expanded out to other categories, laptops and even audio devices like headphones, trading those in. Oh, wow. And so Samsung was really kind of at the forefront of that whole trade-in movement, which now everyone has. Uh, you can trade in your phone anywhere, or pretty much any electronic device. So that was really a cool experience. But it was actually my boss who had. Uh, suggested he to say, Hey, have you ever thought about doing an MBA? He had come from a consulting background. And it was like, I think that's a really good, that'll give you a lot of optionality. And it's necessary to continue further and become an executive at Samsung if that's what you want to do. But otherwise, it's just a good thing to have. I was like, yeah, that's probably a good point. And then my girlfriend at the time was also looking to do an MBA. So we studied together for the GMAT and started the application process together and applied to the same schools, thankfully got into the same schools. And we'd applied to several different programs. We'd applied to some MBAs in the East Coast and West Coast and even in Texas. And at the end of the day, the decision to come to Haas, again, I still knew that I had wanted to do entrepreneurship at some point. And Berkeley was is pretty well known for its startup culture. Christina, my wife wanted to go into venture capital. And there's no better place to do that than the Bay Area. It made sense for both of us. And I was like, we're going to go to this huge startup hub, the startup hub of America and uh, figure out what we want to do next. And that's what led us to apply.
0: That's awesome, Lance. What was it like? Maybe you could share some perspective. You know, I know a lot of hossies, uh, whether they're career pivoting or something, or thinking about doing something different. You know, you went from working at a, a really well-known bank and then going to really a, a global company, but in many ways, still kind of an international company, you know, a very strong Korean culture over at Samsung. Can you explain maybe a, a bit what that experience was like, you know, working for a company that's global, but also very has like a strong culture? And then could you also explain what it was like coming from outside the Bay Area and then coming to Berkeley Haas and almost experience a totally different culture there as well?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Every move that I've made, I'll say that there has been a pretty big culture difference. Goldman has its own culture too. And it's twenty four seven. Everything is urgent. You're with a lot of people who are sharp and driven and motivated. That was great to be in that environment right out of school definitely pushed me to be better. And then I was kind of solo for a year doing my thing. And then when I joined Samsung, that job was also in Texas. So I'd moved to Utah for the job at Goldman, moved back to Texas for that job. So I'd already figured out Texas, knew what was going on there. But working for Samsung, that was a huge career, uh, a huge kind of culture shock as well. It's a People don't know this about Samsung, but Samsung does everything. And I mean that. They have in addition to what we know them for, the electronics element, they have an automotive arm, they have a healthcare arm, they have amusement parks, they have hotels, they have, they represent, I think they represent like between 6 and 10% of South Korea's GDP.
0: Oh my gosh, wow.
1: Just in that one company. So it's pretty insane. So yeah, working for a company, I think a lot of people in the US tend to just work for companies based in the US. And working for a company that's not headquartered in the U.S. is totally a different experience. And the U.S. division, while it's probably their largest division, is still, at the end of the day, a subsidiary of South Korea. And everyone at the end of the day is reporting back to HQ. So there was there there were language barriers that we had to overcome. The company does have a concept of a dispatcher, which really serves as people who help communicate what's going on in your day to day and your quarter and what your kind of targets are and they they relay that back to HQ and then HQ works through them to express what it is that they want to see and so you have this like middleman that's just necessary because of the environment and uh, the language gap. But it was really cool. It was great to work with the company. I got to work with people from not just from Korea, but even in Europe. And so that was pretty exciting just to work for a truly global company. Definitely the Korean culture is pretty different than US culture. Took some getting used to of just how expectations on communication and how you're supposed to address people even. Just a lot of minor nuances that you kind of learn So it was great perspective. And then I think the last part of your question was going to Berkeley as an outsider. So when I applied to grad school and um, I stayed at my job at Samsung, so I did the EW program. And so I kept my job. Turned into I guess I technically transferred to the uh, Mountain View office, but really it was more of a remote work situation. I did that before it became cool, and everyone else did it with COVID. <laughs> but moving out to the Bay Area again, another just totally different experience. I moved from an undergrad program and and a general area that was fairly conservative, and it just you know had a certain the energy business dominates out there, and working for Samsung to the Bay Area, which is just a totally, totally different environment, and I absolutely loved immediately off the bat, kind of the nature. I thought Haas was gorgeous. I thought the Bay Area was stunning. The weather was phenomenal. That was all great. Not so great, the cost of living, and um, running my businesses became uh, a little bit more challenging. But no, it was it was a every single move I've been grateful for because it's given me. A lot of additional perspective on life. And it was, I really did enjoy my time in the Bay. I think I knew at the end of the day that wasn't where I was necessarily going to end up, but it was a great two years.
0: Yeah. Lance, can you explain any memories that you have during the program or any difficulties or, or obstacles that you overcame? And then how did you end up deciding uh, that you wanted to strike out and become uh, an entrepreneur or uh, take a more entrepreneurial route again after being at such a big company like Samsung?
1: Yeah, I came in with the intent of doing something entrepreneurial. Uh, I didn't know if that would be mean joining a startup. And that's for a while what I thought I would do, kind of look for some series seed round, series A, series B, series C, whatever it was, company and and be a key member of growing there or start my own thing. And so I pursued a lot of different paths right off the bat and got briefly involved with Berkeley Skydeck. My wife got much more involved than I did and applied for a fellowship at a forum through the law school at Berkeley, which was like small business law. That was great. Learned a lot there. And so I was exploring all these different paths for entrepreneurship. And within, I would say it was like the first month or so, there was a speaker coming to talk about the concept of entrepreneurship through acquisition and the term search fund. And that's where I, I heard the terminology first it was one of the search fund invest investors come out and they pitched hey you can become a CEO of a company and buy it and grow it and be responsible for the day to day and have significant equity stake and i was like wow that sounds amazing that's exactly what i want to do it's a bigger version of what i had previously done buying my amazon business but Stepping in and it resonated with me because I, I don't think I've ever, unfortunately, just never had that spark to bring something from zero, zero to one. I like to tell people I think I'm better suited to bring something from one to 10 than zero to one. I'm just really good at optimizing processes, improving things, efficiency, and like having the resources to do big um implementations or take some risks. And that's not something I'd necessarily get to do if I was starting from the ground up with limited resources. So that model just resonated with me. And I very quickly, so within one month, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And it was just a matter of execution. And so the rest of my time at Haas was just spent learning more about that search fund world, all the different things it entails, going to conferences, making connections, meeting investors, and ultimately finding and buying a company.
0: Yeah, Lance, I think for folks who are on campus, the whole idea of becoming an entrepreneur through acquisition or being an executive through acquisition, that search trend concept, it's becoming really more commonplace. And a couple of Hossies have really done really well, including folks like yourself. Could you explain a bit about what that process is like tactically, what happens, and then how does someone go from where they are today to actually uh, identifying a, a company and then taking it over as the executive?
1: Yeah. So there are uh, two forms of uh, search fund, really. There's what's called the traditional search and uh, self-funded search. So a traditional search fund uh, will... That's what I learned about first at Haas and when those speakers came out. It's a mechanism where you raise a fund from a set of private equity sponsors and they'll pay you a stipend to go out and search for a business for a year or two years. And um, they'll help you navigate that, provide resources. But ultimately, you go out there and look for a business of a certain size. And that's typically in the 10 to $20 million range. And uh, you go and find that business and then present it to your consortium of investors. And if they all think that it's a good investment, they'll fund the acquisition for you. And then you step in as CEO, and you hit the ground running and and try to improve things and grow the company as much as you can. And if you do well, you're incentivized through equity stakes. So for a solo searcher, you can do it either as a solo or a partnered search. If you do it as Solo, you can invest up to 25% equity, which is pretty good because you, you don't put up any capital. And if you've grown the company to a certain extent, you can get a pretty decent size equity stake in that company in addition to a salary. So it provides a lot of opportunity. And then you get this kind of really nice network of having your investors and having a board and all that. So that was the first model that I learned about and was originally the path I was going on. And then at one of the conferences, so there are two big search fund conferences a year. There's one hosted by Kellogg Booth and one hosted by Harvard. I went to both of those and I found out about the self-fund model and the self-funded model is a little bit bit of a misnomer. It's not. I had a stack of millions of dollars going into this and being like, yeah, I can just fund and buy a business myself. But there's a program uh, called the SBA program, Small Business Administration. Uh, they run what's called the SBA 7a loan. And people may have heard about that through the pandemic. There was a lot of kind of subsidies and payroll protection. It's all kind of under the SBA umbrella. But the SBA 7a loan is a loan of up to $5 million. And it doesn't have to be asset backed. It can be basically cash flow based. And the requirement is that you can use it to fund a a business acquisition. So yeah, that was a... Once I found out about that, I was like, well, man, I can get a $5 million debt note, maybe raise some capital on the side. And instead of vesting 25% equity in a business, I can... Pretty much hold on to all the equity myself. And it will be a smaller business. It wouldn't quite be a $15, $20 million business. But to me, the upside seemed to be pretty substantial. And I like the autonomy that the self fund model provided. Now, it's definitely a riskier play because you do incur diligence costs and no one's paying for you to search. They would be in a traditional search fund. But ultimately, if you're able to grow things and grow things well, there's a good amount of upside. And I think it's just a slightly different personality, someone who wants to be have to complete autonomy for their decision, the decision-making process and their trajectory of the company. And that kind of resonated well with me in addition to the financial element of it. And so I decided to do the self-funded route.
0: Yeah, Lance, once you found out which direction you wanted to go or the channel that you wanted to utilize, how did you identify the business and go through that process of actually acquiring and then becoming the CEO of uh, Ward Road uh, Pharmacy?
1: Yeah. So I started out my search. The other thing that self-funded search allows you to do is since you're the one doing it, you can control where you want to search and you can choose the pace at which you pursue that search. So you can do it part-time, you can do it full-time. It's generally not recommended that you do it part-time because it is a labor-intensive process and especially once you find a deal. But that is what I did and it ended up working out. Oh, wow. So I was... Um, Kind of silly in that respect. I was had my job. I was still working at my company. I was going through my MBA and on the side looking for a business to buy. So it was a busy year for me. And I think that this coincided with COVID. Working from home, not having to commute helped with that. So it ended up allowing me so giving me some extra time. And I think that's the only way that I was able to pull that off. But basically, once I decided to search, I looked geographically. My wife and I met in Salt Lake City. We really liked mountain towns. We figured that we wanted to go out and go back to a mountain town. So we started looking for businesses in Salt Lake City and Denver, primarily those two areas, and that would have opportunities for both of us. And connecting with small business owners, just direct outreach through email, working with investment banks, working with small business brokers. And so I ended up finding mine and through an investment bank. And it was a what resonated me with me about the company. I didn't have background in healthcare, but I did have a decent background in kind of operations and logistics. And this company ships out on a daily basis across the state of Colorado prescription medications and home care supplies and compounds. So I was like, you know, there's something I can wrap my head around. I can think I can be pretty efficient and help drive efficiencies and eventually to get to growth. It was an asset that had been more or less passively managed for the last couple of years by a money management company that didn't really, hadn't. Move the needle much with the company. So, as a company, there where I saw some opportunity there. And then the final thing was that by the time I found this business, we were several months into COVID. And you look at a lot of businesses during COVID and they were just absolutely decimated, like down 20, 30, 40%. This company was resilient. And that's another profile of search fund. You're typically looking for a B2B low customer concentration, recurring cash flow, stable business that gives you a good foundation to build off of. And this checked all those boxes. It was a company that just had a lot of opportunity, hadn't missed a beat. It was an essential service. So it was never shut down during COVID. And it actually grown a little bit during COVID. I was super excited about that. And uh, then I flew out here and met the team and really liked the team. And ultimately placed an offer on it there was kind of a prolonged process there of the initial offer and then the letter of intent and negotiations around the contract the purchase agreement it ended up taking several months to do but I closed on it of May of last year and so I'm coming up on the 1 year mark now
0: wow congratulations when people think about pharmacies, they often think about just their, you know, corner store retail pharmacy, but your company is a little bit different there. Could you maybe explain what Very kind of different. business you do? And yeah, what uh, I think it's called the institutional pharmacy. Is that right? Yeah. What,
1: institutional, long term care, closed door pharmacy. They all have pretty much mean the same thing. What that means is that you, it's not like a Walgreens, we're not, uh, you can't walk in off the street into our store and say, hey, can you fill my prescription? We primarily service group homes, assisted living facilities, and rather than do prescriptions on a one-off basis, we'll fill scripts for an entire home or an entire nursing agency. It's different there. We also, all of our, so we specialize in the intellectually and developmentally disabled community. So that's our primary clientele. And so all of our patients are on Medicaid. They, some of them have primary insurance as well, but they need to be at least a Medicaid patient and they need to be under some kind of managed care. So that can be either a nursing agency, it can be in an assisted living or group home facility, or parents that are just taking care of their kids. All of our clients are under some sort of managed care. And the other thing that makes us unique, so that's the pharmacy element. But several years ago, the same clientele prior to me buying the company approached the pharmacy and said, hey, can you guys maybe provide us with some gloves or with some basic home care supplies? And they did. The previous owner had the founder of the company had the foresight to see the opportunity there and started to develop that. And then that grew and grew. And now that's almost about half the company. And we found out that Really, if everyone can get all of their supplies to take care of their patients from one place rather than getting your prescriptions from one place and your incontinence supplies from another and your wound care products from another, if you can get it all from one vendor and that vendor provides a good level of customer service, then that just makes their lives significantly easier and they get one bill at the end of the month. And so that's that's our unique value add is that we do both home care supplies and pharmacy prescription services and are able to consolidate what may have otherwise been 5, 10, 15 vendors servicing a patient into one.
0: Lance, you know, a lot of people dream about one day becoming a CEO. You closed on the deal, then you're actually the CEO of the company now. What was it like, uh, like being the leader for the company? And what were some of the early things that you decided you wanted to do in order to really just help the business to grow, whether it's people-wise or operations or core business itself?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you that the first day when it was when I closed, I'll always remember that it it was just like, surreal. It'd been two years or a year and a half of work to get to that point. So there was a lot of initial excitement there. Couldn't believe it. it. Finally, the deal was done. I got the keys to the building and the security codes and all that. So that was super exciting. And then my first day, the previous owner brought me in, gathered the team together, introduced me and gave me a chance to introduce myself. I think there was definitely some excitement, some nervousness on the part of the staff and myself working with kind of an unknown quantity, a fairly young guy. They found out then that I didn't really have the healthcare experience. So I think there was some initial skepticism there. I took the time to meet with every single person in the company and got to understand them a bit, let them ask me questions, kind of build that rapport. And I think that was pretty big. That was really helpful in breaking the ice there. And I also shared my vision with them and telling them what I thought, where I thought the company could go and my plans for it. And so pretty much right off the bat, we started to make some changes. I would say the first couple months was just like trying to better understand the business and wrapping my head around the processes and routine mundane things. Like what is the password to X, Y, Z? Like how do I, what's this accreditation board? Like really routine stuff that took a little bit longer than expected, but around month, the first month, second month, I had a transition period with the previous owner who helped uh, teach me. It wasn't like she was gone day one. That would have been tough. So there's usually a transition period and after about a month and a half, we felt like I was ready to take off the training wheels and start things on my own. And then, pretty soon thereafter, we started to make some changes just buying equipment, improving processes, buying, getting our software, getting new software, billing software, starting up, rethinking about growth. I think the company had coasted for quite a while. We didn't have, and still don't really have, a sales and marketing team. We've always re- relied on word of mouth, but that's. That's changing. We are going to really more aggressively pursue growth going forward. But incremental changes, I think the conventional search fund wisdom is don't make any massive changes the first year. Focus on learning the business, making small incremental improvements. And then once you're really familiar, then you can make those big ticket decisions to change around the model or buy big equipment or do things. And I'm, I'm getting to that point now, which is exciting.
0: Yeah, Lance, now that you're kind of almost uh, at a year and looking towards the future as a CEO and a leader, what is your focus now? And where's your head at mostly now? And what do you think is important to know, especially uh, if you're going to give advice to somebody else uh, who's thinking about doing something similar to what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, so I started out, I think when you first buy a business, you have a few things that are absolutely critical. Number one is that you learn the processes and keep the lights on and know how to pay the bills and things there. Number two, build that rapport with your team and get them to buy into the vision that you have for the company and make sure that they see that they have opportunity to grow. And a lot of times you'll be working with who may under been frustrated with the previous ownership or didn't hadn't gotten a chance to share their opinions and thoughts. So really making sure that they know that their voice is heard. And that you recognize that the work that they do and trust them, because you there has to be this element of trust, you're stepping into a new business that you don't have the experience with. So you, you have to rely on your team. So that's critical. And then number three is meeting with your key customers and making sure they understand that you're not going to drop the ball on them, that this new transition is only going to lead to positive things. So that's the other thing I did is I met with our big customers and as many people as I could, and just got to introduce myself to them, give them the chance to give us feedback on anything we could be doing better. And then the next year, it's really I did a lot for the last year, I've been doing a lot more listening than I have been talking, just listening and trying to understand what where the pain points are and how to solve for them and not being afraid to, to make changes and, and to invest in both the people and equipment processes, ways to make things better. And like I said, now that I'm at this year mark, we're starting to make some pretty big changes, which we're really excited about. Very cool. Lance,
0: you know, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Before we end, we have a tradition of having a lightning round towards the end. If you're up for it, I'd love to just uh, give a couple of fun questions, some Berkeley insider knowledge, if you'd be open to sharing.
1: I'll certainly try.
0: Lance, uh, first question, a favorite of mine. uh, What was one of your favorite places to eat when you were in the Berkeley uh, area?
1: So there was an Indian place. I think it was Emeryville. It might've been the uh, border of Emeryville and Berkeley called Mayhawk, Mm. which is incredible. Some of the best Indian food I've ever eaten. Probably oh, that that stands out.
0: That's a new one. Okay. It's going down on my list. Yeah. Second it's question.
1: not like in the block around the campus. So yeah. I'm, uh, changing <laughs> things up. I'm sure you get a lot of things close by.
0: Yeah. Uh, a lot of cheese boards or sliver pizzas or some locals, but uh, got to keep it different. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Another question, Lance, any favorite memories uh, of being in the MBA program that stick with you even now?
1: Yeah, we were there first year was in person, and second year, unfortunately, was all remote. Yeah. But that first year was a lot of fun, and I did several trips with. My cohort, we did a, a trip with our blue cohort up to Napa. I had rented a bus. We had a great time exploring all the wineries and being 45 minutes away from that. That was super cool. Uh, so that was a big highlight.
0: Yeah, Lance, second to last question. What's a, one piece of advice that you've gotten, either personal or professional, that you think has really had a positive impact on your life?
1: I would probably say just not being afraid to step out, your, out of your comfort zone and always be comfortable being uncomfortable is... I I think that's probably a borrowed phrase. I don't know who to attribute it to, but a previous manager told me that. And it's something that stuck with me. If you're totally comfortable, you're probably not pushing yourself hard enough.
0: Oh, it's a great piece of advice. And our last question, uh, you know, what's one thing that gets you excited about the future?
1: So I, right now, I, we've eaten our vegetables at the company, and um, we've implemented all these new process improvements. And I'm super excited about the future of Ward Pharmacy. I think we, we have a tremendous kind of upside. We're exploring partnerships. I'm really excited for the next year to come
0: well lance it's been awesome to have you on the podcast today just want to say thanks and congrats on all of the amazing steps over the past couple of years and you know we just want to thank you again for your time and wish you all the best
1: in the future thank you chris appreciate it.
0: thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the one haas podcast if you enjoyed our show today please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player we'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review if you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm, that's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears!